Hi, I'm Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Welcome to the final episode of season one of The Off-Duty Diplomat. I know it's been quite the journey. As I close out my time in Mexico, we will return to my discussion with my former colleague, Heather, to discuss how U.S. events were impacting us as diplomats across the border and how our sense of community got us through. Then we'll return to my conversation with Fallon to do a final reflection on what it was like for her to do the mock visa interview she did in episode five. Stay tuned at the end for a sneak preview of season two, all about my second diplomatic assignment at the embassy in Israel. My favorite part of the job um, probably had nothing to do with the actual job, but more so the people I worked with. Um, I think we were there at a very unique time, as you mentioned, Um, not just because of the context of time, but I don't know if you recall the fact that we had, let's see, how many were there of us? Like seven Black women there at the time, (laughs) which was completely unprecedented. It might be more. I don't remember. Um, but I think I knew that, that was very special. Um, and it definitely did shape my experience there. Again, I love Juarez. I love the food. I love the people, but I think being with just phenomenal black women who were at various stages of their career and who were all just kicking butt, um, throughout the consulate, I, was my favorite part. And I think to this day was probably one of my favorite work experiences, just because I don't think it probably will ever happen like that ever again. <laughs> it was so rare. It, it's so rare. It didn't happen to me again, for sure. I, it's funny because when I think back on that now, it feels a little bit like that sketch on a Black Lady sketch show that like Black Lady. Yes. <laughs> like I'm like, you look around, I'm like, oh, there's six. Look at you. Look at you. You know what? Yeah. And honestly, like I survived because of that mini community that I think that we built, Um, you know, like, and again, I can't believe you were only there for like three months because I remember us like doing stuff collectively, even for that short amount of time you were there. But even just throughout my two years, like the adventures we had, the random brunches, going to each other's homes, um, you know, there were some hard times that happened towards the end that, you know, we were definitely there to support each other on. Um, So that community I think speaks volumes as to why diversity is so important in the foreign service. It's not that we don't want to interact with other, but there are others. There are just certain things that I think that we understand um, when it comes to trying to survive in a workplace that wasn't necessarily built for us. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, because you're part of that, the black lady adjudication crew was one reason. (laughs) Is that our name? I I claim that let's do it. Yeah, that's one reason I really want to include you in this, because um, I remember one of the big shootings happening, one of the big police shootings. And I want to say Mm. it was Trayvon Martin, but I'm not positive. It might have been that might have been before. But I remember one of them. No, I think it was Charleston that happened because I remember Mm. Kendra's from Charleston. Yeah. And I remembered her looking so kind of shell shocked the next day. You know, we went into work and. I remember there being absolutely no mention of that. There being mm-hmm. I remember that acknowledgement of what had happened. And I think that was one moment when I was like, thank God for these other black women here who have some perspective on this like horrible thing that's happened that apparently none of our coworkers heard about. Because I think that's important too to call out that, you know, a lot, I think really before COVID, 
a lot of these shootings didn't get the same amount of visibility um, for people who are outside of the black community. Yeah. Just it didn't. It seemed to me at least like post 2020, 2020 is when people were like, everybody would know about a thing that happened. Like everybody knew about George Floyd. Mm -hmm. They were whatever situation they were in versus when Charleston happened. I really remember us being the only ones who seemed to know about it for a good minute, you know, like it took several days for it to get around the consulate. Do you remember that at all? No, I have very strong recollections of that. And I do recall just the lack of not just acknowledgement, but even from the people who knew, like just the lack of impact that it had on them. Um, And I remember like struggling, like mentally, emotionally struggling during that time. Um, And just quick to um, uh, anecdotes from that. So I remember actually, um, I don't know if this was before or after you, like probably after, but I went to Cuba while I was in Mexico for two weeks. And I just recall distinctly that, yes, we were having just collective shootings, um, not just the black men, but primarily black men that were being heavily advertised in the news. And I go to Cuba where I'm talking to supposedly some of the most oppressed people on the planet, you know, as far as just not having access to things, their rights not being there. And they were just asking me about my experience in the U.S. and whether or not I felt safe. And it was just the most ironic like weird twilight moment for me where I'm like, wait a minute. They were like, yeah, you guys have a lot of guns over there. We're always hearing about how people are getting killed by your authorities and your police officers. And I couldn't say that they were wrong. Like they were getting very limited news. And of course it was through a very um, specific filter, but they were getting the news that was accurate. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow, how crazy is this? Um, And then another thing I remember is actually, I don't know if you remember that incident in Texas where a young black lady was sat on by a police officer during a pool party. Mm -hmm. And where that happened was actually the hometown of one of our fellow consular officers. I don't know if you remember this situation. Um, He was a white male who was from Texas and he had a very specific uh, understanding of the world. I do I do recall this individual. Yeah. Yes. And we actually had a conversation with this individual, like from our cubicles after we got off the line one day and it was illuminating. Let's say he was very much in favor of the police officer who who would not say it on someone unless they had a darn good reason for doing so and just did not understand why others thought it was problematic. And I remember distinctly that you engaged him (laughs) on this conversation. It would. You would. Of course you did. Um, but yeah, that is definitely one of the memories I have from that time. Thank you for both of those anecdotes. I think they're really illustrative, um, of some of the dichotomy because on the one hand, you know, technically you and I, at least on paper, have the full force of the U S government behind us, even when we're doing stuff like going to the gym, basically at all times, you know what I mean? We're like a phone call away from like diplomatic security, like maybe even the Mexican police will show up. Like we are super duper duper protected. We're on all of their radars. We got the credentials, we got the phone numbers. And at the same time, it's like right across the river, we actually don't have any of those same protections in the same way that maybe some of our colleagues do. So Mm. I do remember that being kind of just like a real, I don't know, illuminating moment. And then especially now that you were talking about that that conversation, (laughs) I mean, Heather, I think a real difficult part of that experience is, you know, we both know the consulate in Ciudad Juarez is the you know, biggest immigrant visa section in the world. It's one of the biggest consular sections in the world. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. plus officers, uh, which is a lot, especially at the entry level and trying to find like safe people was one of the trickiest parts, I think, of the whole career. But in particular in that place, because you do have to have a certain amount of collaboration and like trust in the people you're working with. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially the way that career system works, where you really rely on corridor reputation, just to say gossip, you know, to get other jobs and things like that. It's so I felt really punched in the gut a little bit when we had to have conversations like that. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like that conversation with him was way more explicit. And oh, yeah. It, and I think I remember like saying my little piece here and there. But I remember distinctly like you were giving it to him because he was just and I'll have to say this. So later with that individual. So I ended up having like some real conversations with him even later. And when I left, he actually gave me a card with a heartfelt kind of letter written in there thanking me, um, and I think he probably was re- writing this to the collective of us, but I was probably the only one there at the time, but just thanking me for um, being authentic and um, honest in our discussions with him um, because he thinks it really helped him become a better person and a better officer. So take that for what it is. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I'm I, I to hear that the needle moved a little. Yeah. Even change happens slowly. I do believe that. I do think as I've gotten older, I'm a little bit less willing to pour my energy into conversations like that. If I can help it just cause mm. life is too short. And there are too many of that individual out there for us to be doing that kind of legwork. So yeah, but uh, it's interesting to hear. I was definitely in a more argumentative place than like once you have your core group of people, you just uh, you branch out somewhat, but not to the same degree as like once you get there and you get your comfort level. Um, and so, like, honestly, uh, the, the, what did you give us? The black adjudication crew. What was our name? Adjudicators, yeah. Black lady adjudicators. Like, honestly, that was my crew for the whole two years that I was there. Um, and yes, some of us rotated out. But when it push came to shove, yeah, I hung out with other people. But when I really wanted like, OK, I just need to have fun or I just need to like have real talk with somebody like that was who I went to still, to be honest, the revolving door was exhausting. Cause there are some tours. I did a tour where I just did not really find people I could confide in at all. Like the whole tour, you know, and it makes it so much harder when there's no one you can just like give an actual opinion to. Um, I feel like this is one thing a lot of people don't know about being a diplomat, which is that you are not allowed to express an opinion contrary to us foreign policy Mm -hmm. while you are, serving like at all the whole time and there was some crazy stuff going on during that time period yeah there was a lot of stuff to have an opinion about that we were not allowed to talk about openly to anyone who was not sort of inside the community already so it's really important to have people that you can talk to otherwise you're just kind of holding all of it or you leave like I I did (laughs) Well, and no, and I think you bring up a good point. And again, we didn't necessarily overlap during this time, but there was a presidential election happening at the time in which Mexico was a main feature of the party in a negative way. And so, like I mentioned before that I was doing some PD outreach as part of my duties as a consular officer. So it's like I'm going to Guadalajara and Mexico City doing interviews about Mm -hmm. visa stuff. And guess what questions I'm getting asked, right? 
do you agree that Mexico is full of rapists and that we're sending our worst to I'm an entry level a consular officer. How am I dealing with these types of questions? And not only that, once you know who becomes president, oh, now we have a visa ban. No Muslims are allowed. I love that we're calling him you know who, like he's Voldemort. Go for it. I mean, <laughs> keep going. We know who we're talking about. Like all of this stuff was happening. And again, we're not allowed to have any sort of adverse, any kind of opinion. We just got to do our job. And honestly, like I was not okay with it, especially in the aftermath of just all of the violence that we as a people mentally and emotionally and and physically were dealing with in the nation at the time for that to be added onto it. And for me to not have an opinion, I I felt like that was not a, a legitimate ask of me and I just couldn't do it. So I left. I'm really glad that you said all of that. Um, this actually leads me into another set of questions that I came up with, which is if you could change one thing about that tour, what would you change? Oh, Ooh. well, um, this goes back to some of the things we talked about before, but I would have to say, um, some of the leadership and here, and here's the caveat. I don't necessarily think that we had bad leadership, but I do not think we had what we call culturally aware leadership. Um, so again, the incident that we cited before, we had very visible incidents in the United States that were happening that were sparking conversations um, that were, you know, not necessarily positive conversations, but it was very visible what was happening and it was having an impact in our nation. For there to have been no sort of forum, space for conversation, acknowledgement that was happening at all during that time, I thought was a huge mistake. Um, because yes, we are in Mexico, but guess what? We are all American citizens. And mm-hmm. what happens at home affects us abroad in many ways. Um, and so I just, you know, and again, maybe this was at the top levels of the State Department that this was not happening. And, and it kind of trickled down for that to be the case. But, you know, especially because we were so close to it, like we could literally go to the border for Target on the weekend. So I think we probably felt it a little bit more. Whereas maybe if we were in China or something, I, I don't know, it probably still would have impacted us. But I think just the visibility of things, we were seeing the same news every day. Like I was watching El Paso News every morning before going to the consulate. Um, and, you know, it made me uncomfortable. Like, I'll be very honest. It made me sad. Like some days I just didn't want to go to work. I was really frustrated. Um, and for me to have to go into a space where I felt like I had to just shut up about it, um, unless I was talking to one of y'all on the side, you know, there just really wasn't the opportunity for me to show up as my full self in the workplace. Um, and I think if we had leaders that were, I don't know, maybe it was training, maybe it's just who they were, because I think if you were just any socially conscious person, it's like, how do you not talk about this stuff? Like, I really don't know. Um, so I think it's this institutional problem that we all know about with the state department. I think it'll always be the case, unfortunately. Um, but I think particularly in Juarez at that time, it was felt and it was very difficult. The Trump administration was a breaking point for many of us across the federal government. Civil servants are required to be bipartisan and to work for whatever regime is in power, regardless of our personal beliefs. Heather beautifully summarized the difficulty that many of us felt in trying to reconcile having to publicly support an agenda that we all felt was abhorrent. Now we'll return to my wrap-up convo with Fallon 
after she finished the mock visa interviews from episode five. This is objectively hard and it takes a lot of, um, <clears throat> I'm going to put my instructional design hat on right now. Um, this is a high cognitive load. This is a high cognitive demand. This is big brain energy. My, I'm, I might, I have plans this afternoon. I'm not going to hold you. <laughs> I was supposed to wash my hair. I don't know. Like my brain is tired <laughs> and I'm very smart. <laughs> like, don't get it twisted. Your girl, big brain energy all day. Yeah. I'm, not, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> Fallon, thank you for joining me on the fictional visa line. And giving everybody a little taste of what it was like to do that work day in and day out. And you did eight cases for a non-immigrant, eight immigrant, or sorry, four immigrant. Four and four. I would have done 40 immigrant in a day and 120 non-immigrant in a day. And that case is not people. One case can be up to 12 people. And I had cases that were 12 different people. <laughs> <laughs> No. Yes. <laughs> For two years, day in and day out, every single day, it was this. Friend, how? How? With, <laughs> with difficulty, with, with 25-year-old energy, thank, you know, thank goodness. With joie de vivre. It must have been joie de vivre and a lot of coffee. Well, yeah, because like, wow. That's a lot. This why Heather and Michael both describe me as very serious. <laughs> No nonsense. And so now I'm listening. I'm responding now to your conversation with Heather way differently. Y'all talked with so much joy and like effervescence about something that is exhausting. It's exhausting. Like, again, like I've only done eight of these in the however many minutes we've specifically been talking about this and I'm, I'm tired. So the fact that there could be joy <laughs> in, but there has to be, you know why? Cause there has to be, there's so much despair here. There's so much <laughs> despair here and weariness here that of course there has to be joy. And obviously black women are going to bring joy to the situation. They're going to find love in a hopeless place and community <laughs> where <laughs> it doesn't belong. And yeah, so. Hmm. I mean, we did find community in a hopeless place. That's like, we did tagline for that experience and I would say this was incredibly difficult to do uh I think you have a little sense now of why at the end of two years I was like I got to this point mentally where I'm like I will do anything but this I cannot <laughs> this for another two years yeah I mean anything. I I I I know I and whoever listens to this will hopefully find a deep appreciation for how difficult this work is. But then if they know you personally, I think it also helps them really understand the why behind you. Cause you know, again, I'm still learning. And if I'm remembering how long ago did we meet like two years now? Yeah. Two years. So that version that Alexis that I met two years ago is not, on the mic right now but then I'm remembering how you were then and it makes sense because I'm just like all right I'm listening to and we're telling the story of your life about a decade ago but you just stopped doing this two years ago <laughs> and so 
I saw you, you came into my life two years after you had done this for four of these. Like if we're going to call Juarez one, you did like four of these. Yeah. Well, I did four assignments. Only four one, assignments. thankfully, was consular. We have not gotten to Israel or Afghanistan yet. Those are totally different jobs with totally right. different decision trees and responsibilities, which yeah. I will happily walk you through with additional quizzes and fun training. Not today. Not right now. No, no, not, no. <laughs> oh, probably it's so funny. I mean... Thank you so much for joining me for the conversation. Thank you for being a good sport and playing these dark international immigration trivia games. Um, I was happy to play. I mean, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm tired, but I was really excited to play. It, this is good brain exercising. And I know and I hope whoever listens to this walks away as confused and as tired as me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully it's fascinating. I don't care. You ain't got to be a nerd. You ain't got to be a nerd to really just be like, what? Wow. Really? And ask yourself what decision you would have made. And ask yourself when she's reading the descriptions of the people, who is popping up in your mind? And what assumptions are you making about them? Even though the information that's stated is very limited. You've already filled in some gaps for yourself and your brain. And that's the stuff that it always really bothered me that they don't control for mm. in the service. Cause there are plenty of people who would have said no to everybody. Yeah. And I think please be kind to me. I mean, actually you ain't gotta be kind, whatever. It is what it is. I think I'm, I'm being honest and vulnerable in, in doing this. And before you come for me, sit with that. <laughs> I think you made pretty reasonable and ethical decisions and, Frankly, almost all of them are also really grounded in our actual immigration law. I think where I always struggled personally was seeing people not take it seriously Mm -hmm. or who were, I think, overly aggressive. Because these people that we've mentioned, maybe this number four was a gang member. Does that person deserve to be treated poorly in the window? No, they don't. Do they deserve us to scream at them and not listen to their information? No, they don't. Because it is possible for that I'm wrong. Maybe you're in a band called the Santa Muerte Spiders. And I don't know that. And then I Google and I find out, oh shit, you're the lead singer of this band. And you know what? I was about to make an assumption that was incorrect. That's why we should listen to people. You know, and listen to yourself again during that process. I had a moment where I was just like, I'm over here acting like this is mine. It's not mine. Let me calm myself down. What do I feel? What do I know? What do I think? What I can prove? What do I, what can I prove? So again, that's why I think y'all referred it to your adjudication philosophy that I think figuring out one sooner than later is probably something that could, it's a great strategy to get you through this. It's really figuring out, okay, what's my philosophy? What's my framework? How am I going to navigate this thing in a way that allows me to take it seriously, not suck, but also like not lose my own shit while I'm doing this? The, and I feel, again, I'm, I did not mean this to have such a dark tone, this conversation, but 
when I look back on this experience and really on the career as a whole, but specifically this experience, I always think of the Kobayashi Maru in Star Trek. And mm-hmm. the whole point of the Kobayashi Maru at Starfleet is to teach you how to lose. Ooh. There are some situations that are not winnable. All you can control is the how you lose. You can decide how you are going to behave in defeat. And I think it's so critical for us all as workers, as people, but especially if you're in a leadership position, you need to know how to lose with grace and dignity and respect and ethics. And you need to figure out what that looks like for you because you're never going to get it 100% right. You will absolutely lose and you need to decide what your loss philosophy will be. Mm, That's a bar. That's so true. And because these are the moments where your true character shows, like genuinely. Do you have a framework? Do you have a code? Do you have integrity? Do you have values? They're going to jump out doing some stuff like this. They absolutely do. You can't hide. No, you cannot. Oof. Not from from other people and not from yourself. And I think that's That's... your part. You find yourself adjudicating on the visa line. You are staring back at yourself 120 times a day. I was not expecting this to get so like meta and introspective and esoteric. (laughs) No, it's true. It's really true though, because what if this, what is this? Okay, let's go full woo woo. What is this if not an energy exchange, right? What if this is not an exercise in uh, empathy or vulnerability or understanding or loving kindness or the Buddhism, mindfulness, like all these things. But it's also this nebulous, weary, despair-inducing bureaucratic process that's also a slick money grab which means it is scam adjacent which also has the potential to change lives and connect the unconnectable and bring people together and all of that and probably then some Mm, what a mess it's it's everything everywhere all at once um And I think this is the part that I really struggled with describing to people. And I think watching you go through the decision-making process yourself has led us to my true experience, which was I learned who I was doing this work. You can tell people what your values are. I can say I'm anti-racist. I can say I'm, you know, anti-patriarchy, anti-misogyny. I'm pro-equality. I don't believe in oppressing the poor solely based on economic status. I can say all of those things, but what did the decisions look like? Mm -hmm. What is my thought process like? Am I willing to question those assumptions? And if you believe, or if you subscribe to the belief that a person is the sum of their choices, the company they keep, what a record. You believe in redemption. If you Mm -hmm. don't believe in redemption, how does anyone overcome? How does anyone, oof, ooh, forgiveness. That's also been a thing. We've talked about that a lot personally. So it's wild that this is coming up now. <laughs> but it's true. It's like, what does the rose retribution look like? And what happens mm. when you get someone who has the exact profile of someone who's done you harm in the window? You have the exact profile, whether that is someone who did you harm in a criminal way, someone mm. who did you harm in a familial way. I saw it all. Right. That's you. You're in my brain. Cause I'm just like, what happens when you're triggered? What happens when your parent is in front of you or your uncle or your whoever fill in the blank that you had an issue with the person who triggers you the most, the profile that triggers you the most will stand in front of you at some point. 
So the question really isn't to visa or not to visa. It's how healed are you? (laughs) Are you? How healed are you to even be doing this? Yeah. Thank you for joining. I'm so glad that we got to go through this. And I'm also sorry because I know what you mean. It is exhausting. (laughs) I mean, but you know me, you know me better than most. And I am always down for an experience. If it is a big life experience type of thing that you can only do once or only do, I'm I'm down. I'm super down. Here we go, though. Uh, welcome to your first and final adjudications as a fake diplomat. Uh, thank you. So no, much. not final. I want to do this again. Okay. okay. Yeah, you don't adjudicate anymore. Cause Alexis Trebek, I want to come back. <laughs> I won. <laughs> you won. You are our first and only contestant, so you're also the reigning champion. So, Well, okay. I'm here for that. Do I get a trophy? <laughs> Uh, if you yeah. give me a trophy, then I'll, I'm I'm down forever. Give you a metaphorical, energetic trophy. Um, that's all. Thank you so much for joining. Any final thoughts for listeners as we wrap up? I mean, strap in. It's gonna be a ride. It seems like it will. Yeah. Well, hopefully, fun and entertaining and enlightening and uh, yeah. I left Mexico in July of 2015 to start Hebrew language and press training for my next diplomatic assignment at the embassy in Israel. I left Mexico with a deep appreciation for the people, culture, and beauty of that country, and an overwhelming relief that I would never have to do another visa interview. A huge thank you to Fallon, Heather, and Michael for participating in this project. I will be forever grateful for their time and perspective on a really momentous time in my life. I also want to thank the local staff I worked with in Ciudad Juarez and across Mexico. You all did and do an incredibly difficult job, and we literally could not do the business of diplomacy without you. Finally, I want to thank you, listener, for coming on this journey with me. Next season, I will bring you to Israel with me for my second tour as deputy spokesperson at the embassy through the Trump transition and all that came with it. Here's a sneak preview. And then I think Israel was, I wanted it to go well. Um, (laughs) I wanted it to be really fulfilling. And I think it was very interesting before the Trump transition. Some of that had to do with the policy high points in that country. And for U.S. Israel, it's always going to be a lot of Paul Mill, so much Mm -hmm. political military stuff. And I think if I were a person who was like obsessed with like, aircraft carriers and like sounds like Korea black Hawk. And like, you know, if I was like really into that stuff, I would have loved that tour. But as it was, I feel like I'm a person who I just, I really don't care about it. Like I don't care what the new missile is. And we were constantly getting sent to cover that stuff over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And it was really hard to maintain any interest, honestly. And doing press work, as you know, having been a journalist, it's an, it's all day, you know, and sometimes it's like all week and there isn't time for a bathroom break or a snack or, you know, you are going to be in the car for four hours driving to this thing. And then we got to get the media ready immediately. And it's got to go out tonight to make the cycle. And I had like vacations canceled over and over again. Um, 
I, because I was running the social media and at that time, the Trump administration would only do social media. They wouldn't talk to formal mm-hmm. press. So I ended up having to do the majority of the press work when that administration came in. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts at Public. If you are a current or former diplomat that would like to tell your story, you can email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. Off Duty Diplomat is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening.